0: Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. With a career that includes working in graphic design, fashion, and luxury retail, it's safe to say that Lisa Maynard Atom has a wealth of knowledge and experience. Lisa, welcome to Leave Your Mark. I am so excited to see you. And for everyone listening, Lisa, her career spans from like the early days of social media to now doing such important work. So... Basically, you're a passionate campaigner who works tirelessly to support Black business and Black representation, and you are currently the managing director of the Black United Representation Network, CIC, or otherwise known as Burn, an organization focused on the economic and social empowerment of the Black community. Previous to this, though, totally different, Lisa worked as a social media strategist, this is how we know each other, both as a consultant and for Howard's in-house Heading up their social media department for seven and a half years, taking their following from 30,000 to over 2.5 million across channels, making them one of the most followed luxury department stores in the world. And literally, Lisa is responsible for taking their Instagram from zero to 1.1 million under her leadership. Your work at the iconic store led to an outstanding woman in retail nomination. And as a side gig, you're also the director of the Blair Project, a trailblazing social enterprise which taps into the climate change activism of urban youth by providing them with opportunities to participate in the green tech revolution through building, racing, and accelerating innovations in electric go-karts. So Lisa, you are like, you are all (laughs) over. What sign are you? This is what I need to start with.
1: I am Aquarius. Some other water bearer.
0: <laughs> oh my God. Well, you know, it's funny. You're the first person I've ever started the episode with. But I will tell you, when I started at Donna Karen and I met Donna Karen for the first time, her first question to me was, What sign are you? So I think it's like a fashion thing. But <laughs> I want to start
1: off with Did you grow up in London or you migrated to London? Like, where are you from originally? So originally, I was born in Leeds. Um, So I was born in the north of England. And then when I was about a year old, we left England and we pretty much traveled all over the world because my dad had various different jobs that meant he had to travel. So we lived in New York for a while. We lived in Tokyo. We lived in Cameroon. Wow. Just so many different places. So that was from the age of about one to the age of about nine years old. I basically just traveled for a good eight or nine years. So those were my early days. And then we eventually came back to the UK. We settled in Manchester and my family have, well, my mom has been here ever since. And so have I, until I left Manchester in 2010 to move to London to work for Harrods, where I was for seven and a half years, which is how I met yourself. Yeah. Just, yeah, started working in social media, but it's really interesting how I got into social media. So previous to Harrods, I worked in fashion as a stylist. I've always been obsessed with fashion, as you know, and I thought, I really want to get into the industry. I don't know how I've don't have any fashion qualifications. So I'm just going to get into styling. I just decided one day as you do. <laughs> Wait, what did you major in? What did you study? Uh, I did graphic design at university. Oh, that's sort of related. Yeah, so I've always always been a creative person. So I decided I wanted to get into fashion and go down the fashion styling route and I didn't have a way of promoting myself. I couldn't afford PR or anything like that. So I thought, you know what? I know my way around a computer. I built myself a very basic website. I set up a Facebook group and I set up a Twitter account and that's how I got into social media. It was actually by accident because I just needed a cheap way to promote myself and that's how this all started. <laughs>
0: wow! I love that story. I- I mean, but you obviously have a knack for it, and it was the natural transition. You and I met on Twitter back in the day.
1: Yes, we did. You were one of my inspirations for social oh, media. Definitely. You. I, whenever I was kind of, when I first started at Harrods and I used to do presentations, you were always one of the people I used in my presentations. As an example, you and Oscar PR girl, every <laughs> single presentation, everybody knew I was going to mention you and I was going to mention Oscar PR girl. Oh, that's <laughs> so nice.
0: Thank you. Erica has two gorgeous little girls now and she's uh She's just living her best life outside of working. (laughs) So I just want to go back for a second because you were the first social media person at Harrods. So there's no path for you. You have to just make stuff up as you go. So when you got the role your first day, did you kind of dive in and just sort of apply what you were doing for your personal graphic design business into that? Or how did you decide what to do for Harrods other than obviously seeing what was happening in the space?
1: Well, when I joined, they already had a Facebook and a Twitter account and someone was just updating those. I think it was once a week or something, but there was no, like you said, there was no dedicated social media role. There was certainly no department. So I turn up with my laptop and I basically kind of mimicked what I was doing for myself But obviously it was going to be on a much bigger scale. So the first thing I did was... I started listening to conversations, as you know, actually listening to conversations and finding out what people are saying is really, really important. So I started with that and I basically stripped it back to the basics. I identified a few people who were really big fans of the brand and followed Harrods on Twitter and reached out to them, set up a bit of a focus group, which I kept going throughout the years that I was there and basically got their feedback in terms of what they thought Harrods were doing well, what they thought they weren't doing so well, what they need to start, what they need to stop. And I'll be honest, the feedback initially was not great. So I kind of took the learnings from that, carried on listening to the conversations and basically just started. I just started talking to people, you know, because the clue is in the name. It's called social media. And I think you tend to find, and even now today with some luxury brands, they still don't talk to their audiences. And for me, social media is a dialogue. It's not a monologue. You know, If you want to go down the monologue route, then I don't believe you should be in social media, but that's a conversation for another time. So yeah, I basically started from the bottom, just speaking to people, finding out exactly what it is they love about Harrods, what they'd like to see more of. And I started building it from there. But it was a thing of really like tapping into the stories. Like a lot of people, what I found was there were a lot of um, generational stories about Harrods. So there were grandparents who would go to see the windows as children. They took their children to see the windows and experience Harrods. And then they took their grandchildren through the same experiences. So there was a lot of those kind of generational stories. And in the early days, that's what we built a lot of the content on, like hashtag, you know, Harrods stories and things like that. That's what we built our foundations on. And another thing was, and you're going to laugh at this, I used to get in sometimes at half seven in the morning and just walk the shop floor and take loads of pictures of products and just post because as you know, in those early days, There was no kind of strategy. We were all just kind of seeing what worked. Yep. Yeah, it was basically real-time content. That's all we were doing. And that's how it all started for me, really. I just started building in that way. And then as time went on, it just became more and more strategic and it it grew. I set up the Instagram, I think it was about 2011. And again, it was just that thing of real-time content. And the strategy evolved over a period of time. Okay, so you were there for seven and a half years and then you decided to create your own consultancy, the social word, after leaving there. What made you want to leave and do that? I'm a very adventurous person. And I think it's really important to explore the fullest realms of your potential. You know, there are so many people out there who I think are capable of so, so much, but they never quite step out of their comfort zone. And for me, I've always found a comfort zone, a bit of an uncomfortable place. Interesting. I just feel that, okay, yes, I'm here and I'm comfortable. But what am I not learning? Because I think when you're in a space where you're comfortable and everything is fine, for me personally, that's when I learn the least and that's when I experience the least. Whereas when I step out of my comfort zone and I'm forced to kind of acquire new skills and learn new things and put myself out there, I learn a lot more. So yeah, I've never been comfortable with the idea of a comfort zone. There's a part of me that actually prefers to be uncomfortable. And also, like I say, kind of testing myself to see what I'm actually capable of. I could have stayed in that job quite happily and just you know just done the same thing was actually if I could do this achieve this at Harrods what could I achieve if I stepped out on my own which was a really scary thing to leave the weight of that brand and that name was a very daunting thing but yeah I just felt like I'd I'd gone as far as I could go I had the most amazing time there I met people like yourself and other incredible people I got so much from it I thought you know what, I need to take that and do something with it that is outside of Harrods but it was definitely very scary
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny, as I'm hearing you say this, I so relate to the rejection of the comfort zone. And I think that I naturally also feel like if it's status quo, it's not progression, right? And I think that you knowing that you had those seven and a half years, and plus all the years before when you were doing your own thing um, for graphic design, like as your foundation for creating your business, but... When you started and you needed to get clients, like
1: how did you endeavor to do that? I was quite lucky because the thing is with the Harrods name, obviously, you know, people automatically have a very positive view of you so I was very lucky insofar as people had approached me to do stuff for them in terms of social media so I actually had clients lined up obviously just hadn't started working for them yet because I was still working for Harrods so I was in the very fortunate position where people approached me and I was like I approached by several different companies I was also approached by the London College of Fashion to do lecturing for them which you still do right yeah I still do online, of course, (laughs) everything. Of course, of course. But yeah, I still do that. I'm still a guest lecturer for them. So yeah, I was lucky that I got approached. And then obviously, because I'd built up a wealth of contacts and my time at Harrods, I got recommended to people. I was very fortunate that the work I'd done and the position and the organization I was in, it led to people coming to me, which I know is not always the case, which I'm obviously eternally grateful for. So I was in a very fortunate position insofar as I had clients to start with when I left and kind of started out on my own. I mean, that is, though, the result of you building your reputation while you
0: were at Harrods. Yeah. What would you say is the difference between quitting something and knowing when to walk away?
1: I think knowing, I can use Harrods as an example. Like, I'd been there for nearly eight years. I'd had the most incredible time there but I knew, especially when we hit a million followers on Instagram, I remember the day. It was the 23rd of January, 2017, and it was about half past one in the afternoon. So I remember it. I still remember Wow. <laughs> I just knew, even though I was celebrating that day and I was so excited, I thought, you know what? This is the time now. It's time for me to move on. I've done exactly what I set out to do. I did even more than I set out to do because when I joined, as you know, there was no social media department at Harris, There was nothing. So I didn't actually know how it was going to turn out. And it turned out so much better than I thought it would. And I just got to the point where I knew it had come to, for me, that chapter in my book was coming to an end. And it was just a sense of, yeah, it's time for you to move on. And as well, I wanted to leave on a high I wanted yeah. to go out when everything was still great, everything was still positive because things can change so, so quickly. And I think as well, I wanted to leave before my 40th birthday. I wanted to be doing my own thing before I hit 40. And I was 39 at the time. I was like, right, okay, <laughs> so I need ticking. to do this. The clock is ticking, the clock is ticking, come on. Um, but yeah, for me, I've always had a natural sense of when something begins and when something ends. I think the hardest thing is the fear. Of, Because I was leaving a very stable job in an incredible organization that's known around the world to kind of go off and do my own thing, which is a massive, massive risk. But I think, yeah, I've always had this innate sense of right, Lisa it's time for you to do something else now. The time has come for you to move on. I'm not a quitter. Like I'm the sort of person, I'm very in about things. I will keep going with something just because I can't do something. And the way I look at it is when I encounter something that I'm not familiar with, it's just a case of I haven't found the solution yet. It's not that I can't do it. I just haven't found the way to do it. But yeah, I've always been the sort of person, I know when to start something and I know when to kind of like walk away from it and move on to the next thing. But the caveat there is that there is always that fear because you don't know how things will work out but I've always been a believer that things work out in the end it might take time but you get there in the end (laughs) I would
0: agree with that and even if you don't feel it at the time how would you build let's say you started that job at Harrods today right so you're coming in today in real-time social media 2021 what do
1: you think about the landscape now wow I think when we first started, organic was everything like you had to be constantly strategizing and innovating. We were coming up with ideas on the daily basis. We'd come in and we'd sit there. Right. What can we do today? Let's just come up with some ideas. Let's throw them out there. Let's see what happens. You know, it was very, very reactive. It was very raw. It was very new. Whereas now social media has changed so, so much. It, It feels a lot more scripted now. And there's obviously the huge emphasis on paid organic traffic is at an all time low, as we know. So you'd have to really approach in a very different way. I think going into it now, I would definitely have to look at having strategy for organic and paid. Whereas when I first started, it was just a case of I've got a phone. I'm just going to run around. I'm going to take pictures. I'm going to post things. I'm going to see what works. I'm going to tag, you know, DKMY and see if they repost it. I remember when you reposted us and we were literally jumping up and down, screaming <laughs> in the office. It was so just cute. every time we got engagement from a brand and you guys were amazing. I, I had like a little bell on my desk and I'd be like, oh, it's happened. It's happened again. <laughs> Did you actually have a bell? A little yellow. Yeah, I've still got it somewhere. A little yellow bell. That's so cute. Oh my God. So wait, so are you still consulting? Well, I still kind of advise people on occasion, but not obviously as often as I used to because I've kind of moved over to Bern. But that's not to say that I wouldn't revisit it in the future because the thing is, as much as I'm not fully... Involved in social media, and I still get lots of people approaching me. I still get people asking me for advice, especially when they found out where I cut my teeth. It's like, oh, so you d- built the social media for Harrods? Well, you could help us then, you know. And it's, I mean, and it's fantastic, you know. I'm, I will never, ever, ever tire of hearing that. I, it's a privilege for me. But yeah, that's not to say that I wouldn't go back to it. And I do keep a hand in it. Obviously, I do keep myself abreast of what's going on because I still do all the social media for Burn. I still obviously manage all of that. But yeah, I don't think I'll ever move away from social media. And I don't think I want to, you know, getting involved in social media, albeit by accident, has led to some of the most incredible opportunities and experiences. I would never have met people like yourself if I'd never have got into this world. So for me, I will always have a hand in it. And, you know, someday I might go back to it full time. Who knows?
0: (laughs) Never say never. Yes. So. I want to just take it back for a second because, you know, your father worked for the UN, your mother was a charity worker, your sister is a scientist. So social causes growing up and being aware of the world was sort of like in your DNA. So it's not to me so crazy that you would have this role now as managing director of the Black United Representation Network. So how did you decide to go
1: from your own consultancy in social to taking on this role? I've always had an interest in issues around social justice and my whole family do as well. You know, it started for me at a very, very early age. Like I remember my dad used to take me to his meetings and he used to do it deliberately because he wanted me as a girl to see that actually there are, you have a lot of options. You know, you, you can get married, you can have children, but you could also be a CEO. You could be a doctor, you could be an astronaut. And he would deliberate. And I never really understood it when I was a kid. But as I've gotten older, I realized what he was doing. And I always used to go to these meetings, I just think, you know, there were women there, but the women were just like making the tea and bringing the biscuits. They weren't really having any input. And the only black faces in there were mine and my dad's kind of evolved from there. Like when we lived in New York, we lived in Queens and there was a children's home, not that far from where we lived. And every time my parents bought me something, I had to take something to the children's home to give to one of the children. So it was, you receive something, you give something you know, it's not just, okay, you have to understand that just because you live a privileged life, it doesn't mean that everybody does. So my parents were very, very big on wanting me to understand that just because I have this lifestyle, it doesn't mean that all other children do. So that's always been a part of my world. And I think the thing for me was I always wanted to get to a stage where I was using my skills, not just to benefit myself, but to benefit other people. And ultimately, you know, philanthropy is something I'm very, very passionate about. And eventually that's where I want to get to. But it was a case of, you know, especially when I was in London and I was having an amazing time and I was doing this amazing job. But it was always there in the back of my mind thinking, right, okay, I'm doing all this great stuff that's having a fantastic effect on me and my life and my career. But am I doing enough for other people? And I didn't feel that I was. And we'd been having conversations myself and the other founders in terms of burn. We'd been having a conversation for years about doing something. So when I moved back to Manchester at the end of 2017, those conversations started up again. And it just seemed like right, okay, this feels for me the right time where I can use all of my social media skills and experience to kind of add value to something that is more focused around social justice. And that's how it came about. They were just conversations and then we set Burn up in February 2020. And I was doing bits of social media for it and communications and things like that. And it kind of just evolved from there, to be honest. And then when I got the opportunity towards the end of last year, I was approached by um, the board saying, you know, would you be interested in taking this opportunity on? You've said you've always said you want to use your skills for a greater good. Um, and needless to say, I've not been an MD before, so I'm very new to this. Um, and I thought, you know what, this is the perfect opportunity for me to step up and do something that I've always wanted to do and something that I've grown up with you know my family are very much about when you have a skill or a talent or you have experience you don't just use it for the good of yourself you use it for the good of others you know and it's like yourself you know you were very supportive of me when I was at Harrods which a lot of brands weren't but you were very supportive from the early stages and it's Hmm. like you've got to pay that forward if somebody is good to you then you should be good to others and I've had incredible support over the years and You know, realistically speaking, this is just my way of of kind of paying it forward and and giving a little bit back for all the the support and encouragement that I've had over the years from incredible people, yourself included. So, yeah, it's just a way for me to kind of give back and do something good. I love that. Tell us about the mission. So. Our mission is focused on the economic and social empowerment of the black community. You know, we know what's happened historically with the black community over the last, you know, 400 years. So two of the things that were really important to us is building a pipeline of black leaders. Because if we look at the region where I'm based, so I'm based in the Greater Manchester region in England. And if we look at our region, there are currently only one black person in a senior leadership role. So we really want to build a pipeline of black leaders because, you know, I firmly believe that the leaders, whoever they are, whoever's serving our community, they should be reflective of the community they serve, whether it's based on gender, race, disability, sexuality, religion. I think our leaders should be reflective of the communities that they serve. And not just here, but in many parts of the world, that isn't the case. So building a pipeline of Black leaders who can influence policy and things like that is one of our key focuses. Another focus is around capacity building Black-led organizations, because historically, Black organizations have had barriers in terms of access to finance, access to networks and and so forth. So what we're doing is we're working with black organizations to really capacity build them so that they are contract ready and that they can have longevity and just have the access that's been denied them for so long. So those are two of our kind of key missions. And it's been really rewarding so far. It's been tough because when it comes to the subject of race, you know, it's not the easiest thing to talk about. And there have been some uncomfortable conversations, but it's uncomfortable conversations with a view to leading to a good place. Mm -hmm. So they're two of our key focuses.
0: What would you say as far as people who are in management positions at companies, what questions should they be asking themselves? Or how can you take the mission of Burn and sort of educate people who are in the hiring capacity, right? Because I do think it starts with educating that manager level of saying like, when you endeavor to hire, so as far as like
1: grooming that next generation of Black leaders. I think it needs to start from the top. I think what I've seen a lot of companies do and continue to do, and, not, and this isn't a criticism, is that they kind of bring people in at the lower end of the scale. And actually it's a thing of, if you're going to bring about positive change, it starts at the top. It, you know, It needs to be the people in the upper echelons who are willing to give people a seat at the table, who are willing to open those doors. And really you have to take an honest look at yourself and say, right, okay, we aren't where we need to be. We know we're not. What are the things that we have to do to get there? It's not about bashing people. We know what the issues have been historically. We've all seen it. We've all experienced it. We know what the deal is. It's actually taking a step back and looking at yourself and thinking, right, this is where we are. We're not where we need to be. What are the things that we need to do in order to get to a more diverse and inclusive place? And as well, it's about Being willing to have those uncomfortable conversations, like I say, it's not an easy thing to do, but I think, Mm -hmm. you know, change happens at the point of action. And I think that change begins with a willingness to sit down and have those conversations because nothing can move forward without initiating those conversations, which at times will be uncomfortable.
0: You know, I totally agree with you that it starts at the top, but I think my purview comes from, you probably know, I I started like a young aspiring professionals community for Leave Your Mark. So the age range right now, we're recruiting for the second boot camp, which is 20 to 27. So I do think that it definitely starts from the top, but it also starts from the beginning, right? Because you have to go into work with the knowledge and education that this is important, right? Because then you become a manager and you get your first direct report. And if you are not conditioned to understand the importance of diversity, inclusion, and equity... Yeah, it just skips over you, right? So I think every level of the organization needs to be educated on this. Uh, many black people, I would say, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, don't want to share sort of their negative experiences and barriers that they may encounter in the workplace because they're afraid of repercussions. Yeah, What would you say about this? And how would you encourage people to speak up? Even if it's like, a microaggression, right? So I think like just being aware of like your surroundings and what is happening and the sensitivities there. Like, how would you recommend that black people speak up? And how would you recommend that colleagues be allies to their black
1: coworkers? Again, I think it comes back to conversations. Like I've had a few of my colleagues or friends who've reached out to me saying, right, Lisa, I want to make sure that I'm doing things in the right way. You know, what can I do to be an ally? you know, what are the right things that I should say? What should I avoid saying? And I think it's that thing of being willing to come and have just a a very open and honest conversation. And I think being honest, I think, and I definitely have done this whereby you've been in a situation and somebody's made a comment that's kind of not appropriate, but You don't want to say anything because you don't want to cause any animosity. You don't want to feel uncomfortable. So you kind of just laugh it off when actually what you should be doing is challenging it. And I've done that more times than I can even remember. And it's just because I know I've been in situations where if I'd have challenged that, I would have come off worse. It would have been really uncomfortable for me. But I think we've now got to a place where you can't really sit on the fence anymore. You have to pick a side. And the way I look at it is I wouldn't want it for someone else. I wouldn't want it for me. So if I wouldn't want it for me, why would I want it for you or somebody else? I think the time has come where you do have to speak up. I fully appreciate that. I can say that as a managing director, I'm in a senior position. So I'm afforded the luxury of being more open and honest than some people who are maybe lower down in terms of their organizations. But I do think things do need to be challenged. It's just about finding the right way to do it. But you know, if someone says something to you that's offensive or, you know, just try and have a conversation. Look, you made this comment. You made this statement. It's not really appropriate, but it's not appropriate for these reasons. Always make sure you qualify everything because there needs to be understanding. You can't just say to somebody, oh, you're in the wrong. Well, why are they in the wrong? Explain it to them because they might not understand. They might not know. You know, they've never walked in our shoes. They don't have our lived experience. So, sometimes you do have to explain things. You do have to take people on a journey of understanding so they know actually this isn't the right way to approach it, but this is. So I think it's a case of kind of on both sides, just being willing to come to a a place where you can have those open and honest conversations without fear of retribution or being made to feel uncomfortable. But you know, I fully appreciate that that's hard to do. And we've got a lot of work before we get to that place. What do you think is the most difficult part of explaining
0: racism to people who just have never experienced it? Like a lot of times people, I mean, myself included, and I've said this on a previous podcast with my friend Ty, like I've always been about my colleagues and my network. And I've never cared, you know, color, race, religion. Like it was something that I was conscious of my whole career. So now that we have this sort of new awakening as to like the roles we play in helping solve this, for someone that's like, I don't have that in my community, or I don't have that in my organization, how would you explain it so that people who are really detached from it can understand and have empathy?
1: The way I approach those conversations is I use my own experiences, which at times they're not easy stories to tell. But the best way I think I can get that across is to explain some of the experiences that I've had as a black woman in terms of, you know, I interviewed many, many years ago for a job. I got down to the last two and found out that I didn't get the roles. I thought, you know, that's fair enough. The other person was obviously more qualified for the position. Good luck to them. And then fast forward a couple of months, one of the senior management team got in touch with me and actually told me that the reason I didn't get the job was not because I wasn't the most qualified, but because the owner of the business didn't like black people. And it's just like, how do you even, how do you even respond to that? Yeah, I don't even know. Exactly. And the way I do it is I use my own experiences because there's no other way for me to really explain it and say, well, these are the things that I've experienced. Even little things like every time I go into a store, I always get a receipt because nine times out of 10, if they're going to stop somebody when you're leaving, it's me. They're going to stop. You know, and it's something I do to this day. My mother does it. My sister does it. My friends do it. And it's, you know, it's the little things. It's not always racism is not always expressed in its most explicit terms. Sometimes it can be very, very granular and it's barely noticeable and and it's things like that. So I tend to use my own experiences as a black woman to try and convey and educate people in terms of racism. When I encounter those kind of situations, it's probably the best way that I can do that. You have said
0: that you once went in for an interview and was met with, I didn't realize you were Black. You don't come across Black on your CV. Yeah. yeah. That's so crazy, Lisa.
1: I, I mean, your jaw must have been on, on the floor. Like, how did you deal with that in an interview situation? I know I asked the question, I so, said, "Well, how would you expect a Black person to come across on a CV? And I think the scary thing there was the ease and the comfort he said it with. And it's like, it's obviously you know, the norm in that environment for them to have conversations, racial conversations. And I'm like, okay, the, the comfort you said that with is the most worrying thing. And I said, you know what, in light of the comment you've just made, I think it's best we just terminate the interview because that's all I could do. And there was no way I was going to continue with the interview after that. But it was just a case of he was so comfortable. Saying it, I'm just like, "Mm, that makes me extremely uneasy. And then as I was leaving, they were following me and apologizing, Oh, you know, we're really sorry. I'm like, you know what? Let's just leave it there. And I I was really polite about it. I wasn't rude or anything. But I said, you know what? I really don't want to continue this interview. So I just left. Because how else can you react to that? There's just. I mean,
0: I so applaud you. And
1: I think that you
0: do have to be strong, right? Because if you really need a job, And let's say it's your dream job and you really want to work at this company. By the way, I don't know how you'd want to work at that company after that comment in general, but it takes strength to sort of face it head on, address it, and then just be like, I am not going to tolerate this. So I think that is wonderful. Let's switch gears for a second. You lecture at London College of Fashion, which I love. And as someone who also loves teaching, what
1: drew you to that role? What do you teach on, I guess, social media or what is your course? So I focus on obviously social media, digital communications. And I think what drew me to it was actually... It's that thing, again, of wanting to give back. And it's like, I have all of this knowledge. And especially in fashion, you know better than most people how difficult it is to get into the fashion industry. It's one of the toughest things. And it's like, well, I have all this knowledge. And if I can help someone in some way who wants to get into that industry to get in then for me, that will be a massive, massive plus. Again, it's just that thing about wanting to share the knowledge that I've got. I don't want to just keep it all to myself. If I can help others, then I'm very happy to because I received a lot of support. You know, I would not have got that job at Harrods without the support of some incredible people and people opening doors for me. And like I said, fashion is not an easy industry to get into. So if there's some kind of contribution that I can make to help, you know, young aspiring fashion designers, Anyone who wants to get into the fashion industry, if there's something that I can do or if I can share knowledge that's going to help them get close to that goal, then I'm very, very happy to do it. And I was actually turned out to be better at it than I thought. I didn't know how I was going to be when it came to teaching. I was like, oh, I'm not going to be very good. I'm a corporate person. I come from a corporate background. But actually, once I started... I actually found that I had like a natural flair for it, which I was pleasantly surprised by. But yeah, it's a fantastic thing. I know and I still do the occasional workshops and stuff like that on top of everything else. But it's just amazing to meet some of the fashion students. As I'm sure you know, they're just the most incredible, imaginative, creative people. And they really feed that kind of creative side of me, like some of their ideas and some of the way they think and the creations and the designs they come up with, they're just breathtaking. And it's just a joy to kind of be around them. And I, and I learned something as well, um, which is really important for me. I think learning is a lifelong journey. So for me, I learn just as much from that. I hope they learn a lot from me, but I certainly do learn an incredible amount from them
0: what would you say is the first piece of advice you give your students?
1: I would say the first piece of advice is in order to make your dreams come true, you have to work hard. You have to make sacrifices you are going to have to do things you don't want to do I think a lot of the time we hear stories of success which are really inspiring and really motivating but I do think you need to be honest about actually what it takes to achieve success like I remember talking to you guys you had been doing a well it was New York Fashion Week and you would literally worked through the night on a show and that's what people don't <laughs> see you know people will see you'll go to the DK1 show and it'll be this amazing show but what people don't see is the work that you put in all of you put in to getting to that point. And I think it's really, really important that people know that and understand that So you can achieve anything you want to in life, but it will come at a price and hard work is one of them. I think you've got to be realistic like dreams can come true but they come true when you put the work in you work hard and you commit yourself and you dedicate yourself and understand that yeah there are going to be days when you have to do extra work and you can't go out and have cocktails with the girls because you need to study or you need to hit that deadline and I think that's one of the things it's like understanding that in order to make your dreams come true you will have to put in a body of work and that's how a lot of successful people get to where they are they don't just wake up one day and be like oh I'm this and I'm that, it's, they put a lot of work in. And I, I remember listening into an interview and the journalist asked the musician what it felt like to become an overnight success. And the musician laughed and said, it's taken me 20 years to become an overnight success. And that is, <laughs> totally. that's exactly it. It's like, people don't see like when, I remember when we used to create content and there was one particular campaign when I was at Harrah's and we created the content and everyone was like, how great it was. What they didn't see was I was literally crawling on the floor following this girl around in her shoes to get the piece of video content that we wanted I was literally on my hands and knees
0: (laughs) whatever it takes it's whatever it takes is what you do right
1: yeah it's what you have to do you know if you want to get somewhere you kind of have to figure out what you need to do and then do those things in order to get there and I think that sometimes that side of the story isn't told enough it's like Yes, you could have the big, shiny success thing, but it's all this kind of dull stuff that you sometimes have to do in the background in order to get that big, shiny kind of success. And I think that would be the first thing. And another thing I think as well that's really important is embracing your mistakes and failure is part of succeeding whether we like it or not it is we don't like it (laughs) I hate it oh my god I hate failing I hate getting things wrong but I've really had to learn that that's all part of the process and as cheesy as it sounds it really is and I think we need to be taught more that we need to embrace our mistakes and you know failure is not as bad as it might seem you know you will always learn something and that's what I've always found when I have made mistakes and I have taken a wrong turn okay, it's not what I wanted, but I've always come away from it having learned something. And it's okay to fail. It's okay to make a mistake. You're human. No, there's no such thing as perfection. So I think that's another thing. I think embracing your mistakes and accepting failure as part of that journey on the road to you know, your destination, which would be success. So there's some of the things that I would advise. When you look back
0: at your career journey so far, what would you say is the biggest challenge you've had to overcome?
1: I think the biggest challenge that I've had to overcome and that I still struggle with is confidence. Because whilst I know I have the ability, I still sometimes I'll be sitting there thinking, oh God, I've only been an MD for like eight, nine months. Like he's been an MD for 15 years or she's been a CEO for 20 years and oh, I've got no experience in comparison. To them. So I think the confidence thing is an ongoing challenge for me. I know I can do things and I do have confidence in my abilities and my experience but i do have those moments where i think oh god oh god should i be here i feel like an imposter like somebody's gonna come and ask me to leave so i think that you kind of have to be your own biggest cheerleader if you like and you know i tell myself right lisa you can totally do this and if you get something wrong, it's not the end of the world. But I think the confidence thing is an ongoing challenge for me. I'm always having those conversations with myself. Like when I do interviews or I, I do TV interviews, people are like, oh, you're so confident. And in my head, I'm thinking I'm not actually, I'm just gritting my teeth and getting But you're it. coaching yourself. Yeah. You're coaching
0: yourself through it, which I think, listen, I think everyone has those moments. Everyone yes. feels that way <laughs> at some point in the day, I would say, or more than one time in the day. But it is. About coaching yourself through it because at the end of the day, you know, Stephen Kolb, who's the CEO of CFDA, did the podcast last week and he's obviously very accomplished and he's been at CFDA since 2006. And he even reminds himself, and he said it on the show, sometimes you say to yourself, like, you're in the room because you're meant to be in the room. You've worked to get in the room. So if you're in the room, that should, for starters, give you the confidence to like, take you forward? Because it's hard to get in the room in the first place, yes. right? So if you're there, you've done something to merit being in the room. Yes. So I do think that's really valid. How do you want to ultimately leave your mark? I feel like I know the answer, but let's hear what your ultimate like headline for Lisa would be.
1: How would I love to leave my mark? I love to leave my mark knowing that I've done something that's led to helping others. I think that's the thing for me. It's like, no matter how many things I achieve, I think for me, the ultimate achievement was how I've helped others and how I've made a difference to other people's lives. Because I think for me, that's what's important. Like I said earlier on, what is the point in having a skill and experience uh, or money or anything? What is the point in having all of that if you're just gonna use it for yourself, if you're not gonna use it for the benefit of others? I think that would be the thing for me is I'd like to think that I'll leave my mark having made a difference, even if it's only one person. I would like to have left my mark by making a positive difference to somebody's life, I think. I would be very, very happy with that. Very happy. (laughs)
0: Well, that is super worthwhile. And I know you're doing that in your current role. So, Lisa, this was amazing. You have such wonderful advice. It was so great to see
1: you. You Keep doing what you're doing. And can I just say a massive, massive thank you to you from the days that, from my early days at Harris, you always were super supportive. And especially as a Black woman as well, you know, that's not always been the case. Um, So, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to you for always championing me and supporting me. And I, I genuinely, genuinely do appreciate it. And I'm happy to see all the stuff that you're doing with Leave Your Mark. I think you're doing some incredible stuff. And I just can't wait Thank to see you. where you go next. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate that. And, you know, it's funny because I will say that, you know, early days as far as like our back and forth interactions, like I'm going to pat myself on the back for this one. I recognize talent. I'm a really good talent spotter. So when you and I started engaging, I'm like, oh, she's good. Like she's really good. So, you know, I gravitate just like you probably gravitate. Like I gravitate to people that I admire and I see the talent, you know, through the screen, even though like we didn't really know each other like in person. So that's really where it comes from. But I appreciate that. So thank you.
1: You're welcome. (laughs)
0: Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at AlizalichtXO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Alizalicht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalicht.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.